This is Colossus, and you are listening to The High Regard Show. The High Regard Show. It's... The Physically Challenged. Check out The High Regard Show. New episodes every Monday. Hey everybody, I'm Tom. And I'm Nikki. And this is the High Regard Show. In which we talk about things we hold in high regard. Very high. High above Harlem. Way up on the third floor. Moving Are you going to be up. testy with oh, me? Oh, don't get better than that. No, sir. Let's find out. Welcome to this week's show, everybody. You had to start off this way. It's literally the only way our shows can start off at this point in time. You're just bitchy, Tom, and I have to call you out on it. I am bitchy because I'm still in pain, so that's what it just winds up being, man. I understand. I understand. But I was in pain as well, and I still was a chipper, chipper chipmunk. Well, that wasn't true whatsoever. I mean, you're a lot better now than what you were, but you were a miserable bitch. Was I? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's good now because you're on the road to recovery, so everything's all cool in the gang with you. As soon as I get healthy, I'm going to kick your mama's ass. (laughs) (laughs) My mama is in way better shape than you are, so I wish (laughs) you the best of luck when it comes to that. When you you get on your kayak and catch up to her... Let's see how it goes. Like, I'm putting my money on the old lady. (laughs) So, but I mean, you just got done getting your repairs done. And already, like within one week, seven pound drop. Seven pounds of weight, yes. Like, that's absolutely insane, considering you didn't have weight loss surgery. You just had surgery. I did. And I've been, and I feel like I've been eating, like I've been eating a lot of Nutella. Like a lot of Nutella. I don't think that's helping your weight thing, but on the same (laughs) subject. But even with all the Nutella on toast, like white toast, no less, like I've lost seven pounds. So, I mean. White is evil in all aspects. You're the one that wanted it. You're like, we have to have Wonder Bread. Well, because you want to grill cheese. What do you make grilled cheese with? Wonder Bread. You wanted to make it with Italian bread. I don't even get any friggin' grilled cheese, Dr. Tom. I was going to make it for you, but like you're, you're. ability to have any patience at the time was just insane it was like all right do you want grilled cheese i'll make it something myself and then what do you make toast and you put a cheese in the middle of it so you just made a poor man's grilled cheese it's like you know if you would have just sat there and let me do it like i asked you you would have had grilled cheese but it was on you i'm like i'm not gonna you know you were too busy playing your new addiction I have a major addiction. To wait on me hand and foot like I ask and like I do for you when you're sick. I don't want it. I just want to be left alone when I'm sick. I don't well, want anybody be. around. You well, live that's with two on women. You. You're never it's going to be. It's on you. At the end of the day, it's on you. Like for Isn't me, everything. I just want to go in the room, close the door, have the shades completely down. Good to know. Have it be pitch black. And then it suits okay, my mood. Good. Good. It suits my mood. Good. I hope you rot in festering bed sores then. Uh, nothing would make me happier at this point in my life than to be able to get bed sores. Because that would mean <laughs> that I'm actually bed, getting... But in another bed, not our bed, because I am in love with our bed. 
well, whatever. I'm putting my saw scabs all over it from here on <laughs> out. So there you have Let's it. Let's do what you heard. Shut up. Fine. You heard? So this week's You Heard is, is, is quite a poignant <laughs> nugget that I'm sure somebody else once said, somebody much more prolific once said, but it comes to us from the Uptown A at Fulton Street, where I spend a lot of time. Well, used to before you... Well, I mean, I yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> For a couple uh, weeks, I'm The I'm day's away. coming. <laughs> shut up, shut up! <laughs> um, so this old man was having this conversation with this other like old man, and they both kind of seemed sort of like you know, drifters, vagabonds, if you will. So they were okay. trying to like outdo themselves. And one says to the other, I look at art as a way to express yourself. Like, uh, no shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> All right. As if somebody, like, as if one guy asked another guy that question. But you should hear the thing they said about music. <laughs> if they're vagabonds and they're on a train, wouldn't that automatically just make them hobos? Well, I didn't want to call them homeless or hobos. Like, I wanted to use like a. Well, you don't have to be homeless to, to be a up. hobo, do you? you I mean, it kind of helps. You're just like a I roamer, guess. I think. I guess That's... it's like a. It could be like, maybe one of those like you know when you when you like apply for a job, it's not quite a prereq, but it's like, you know, it's a plus. <laughs> I feel like if Pa Capshaw was on the prairie and just wanted mm-hmm. to just get away for a while, he would just jump on the freight train because the freight stops. never stops. <laughs> And just hobo it across the country. It's not like he can't always go back to the prairie if he wanted. Most people Who's have a place Paul to go back Capshaw? to. Capshaw? I don't know. I feel like he should be a person. He's not, I don't <laughs> think. But I feel like now that I mentioned it, like subconsciously, like he might be somebody somewhere down is. the road. Uh, if he's not, We're like, gonna make him one. I guess he could be. I feel like I should just constantly just call back Paul Capshaw. You we know. should probably have him on the show. <laughs> And just, you know, I mean, no, there's no Cromwell. such thing as a paw capshaw. So TM, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> so that was this week's You Heard. And we got a trademark out of it. Doot, 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 doot. Do, Play the do. music. I mean, this week's you heard go- does kind of like play into, you know, our guest. Oh yes, because yes, because she's we have a guest, a- artistic. Yes, she is. She's creative, and we actually have a guest for the first time in weeks because you know we're like I'm on the mend, so it's like oh I could do things again. So except I didn't. So. Yeah. So what Nikki did was <laughs> she booked a guest and said, "Hey, broke dick, do me a favor. <laughs> I know I tomorrow s- is your surgery, but." Listen, I'm still recovering. I made all the arrangements. That is not what happened. I got stuck on a work phone call that I could not miss. So shut your mouth. You are trying to talk. And then here it is. And then here it is. And then I'm like going, all right, I'm going to try to be personable on this phone call. And and it's things. And you were, which means that you're going to be an asshole to us the rest of the night. That's right. (laughs) All my personal in this is gone. Like it's wasted on the phone call now. You get the leftovers. You get the snickle fritz rest of me for the rest of the night. Well, then I am glad that Liz Mealy got 
the Pineapple Express of Tom's personality today. Well, I'm glad she did too because she was very deserving of it. She really was. I was eavesdropping because my call just happened to end like 10 minutes after you guys started and it was such a good interview. And I was going to call you out. I'm be like, oh, look, Nikki just came in and I'll be like, here, I'm going to let her finish and just get up and walk away from the table just to see how I that would turn it. it. Because you wouldn't look at me, but I was like oh, sitting on the couch and I was just like, <laughs> like I wanted to so hard, like interject and be like part of the fun. No. The, the fun was mine. You you relinquished your fun. Okay, fine. When Good, it was fine. time. Whatever. And then I got to do the interview. Whatever. So let me talk about Liz before Tom horns in and gets a really good interview. Bitch. Oh, well, since you <laughs> set it up, you might as well take the credit for it, even though you didn't do it. So please, please go ahead and just set this up. So Liz Mealy is a comedian who has been on the comedy circuit for pretty much the better part of her life. You know, she did her first stand-up routine at age 16. Uh, she's now, like, in her, you know, early 30s. Um, she can count. Oh, well, she can she, count. <laughs> I was pausing because I was like, do I want to well, give it away now? Well, or, I think that you've said enough. I mean, I mean, she's maybe the most smartest person she's we've brilliant. had on this show. <laughs> I mean, but, including us as well. I mean, but, seriously. Shut up. So she can count one of the greatest, if not the greatest comedic minds of any generation that has ever got on stage and done comedy as her mentor. And of course, we're talking about George fucking Carlin because... I mean, it's just she was friendly with him and she got, you know, advice from him. He was like her, you know, he he was like, oh, my God, what was his name? And I don't know. What was his name in um, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? Listen to me. George Carlin is what it comes up in after credits. Rufus. Rufus. He was Rufus. So he like guided her through like you know as she was kind of like learning the ropes of the comedy world at such a young age because that's a really young age to get into the dark and seedy underbelly underbelly of like the comedic world and she did it in like new york because she's from jersey yeah and it's weird because i feel like back then new york was seedy new york so i mean i can only imagine like the strange shit she probably saw like which is probably something if i would have wrote the interview i would have been like what's the craziest thing you've seen in a new york club well you could have asked her but well maybe i'll just give her a call back now that i got her number just every once in a while i'll just give her a call and be like hey i thought of something else what about this shut up you did say you were a stalker and i did say i did say we were stalking (laughs) i'm like going hey listen we researched you so shut up shut up (laughs) you know i don't know the technical terms because i'm not a regular journalist so what you call research, I call stalking. <laughs> I don't know what the difference is from when you called, do it to when I do it. I call it being nosy Nikki. That's uh, what I call Fair it. enough. But don't worry, Liz. I won't let him stalk you. <laughs> like but... she could stop me. <laughs> stop Expect it. a call, Liz. Okay, Expect stop a call. it. Stop it. <laughs> okay, Jesus Christ. So anyway, so Liz, in addition to all these wonderful things and being a really funny comic, she is releasing her second comedy album, Mind Over Melee. And it's really, really funny. You should definitely check it out. But before you do that, listen to our interview with Liz. And let's roll that fabulous bean footage. Hello? Hi, Liz. I'm good. This is Tom from the High Regard Show. Yeah, how's it going? All right. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, my God. It's our pleasure. So 
obviously we want to start off by talking about Mind Over Melee, which is coming out March 28th. What was the inspiration behind it? Um, it's always so hard because it's like it's not it's like a year and a half worth of writing jokes, so it's not like I had like it's not like a one woman show where you're like I was sad and I to do something with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh huh. It's like it like it has a through line and there's an arc to it, but like that was after like writing you know chunks about you know, traveling and trunks about mental illness and chunks about breakups. And then you kind of find a through line and try to have something that sounds both funny and smart. Um, but honestly, I, it, it, this last, you know, last year and a half, I've, I've now done uh, four European tours. So it's a lot of me flailing and making mistakes over in Europe and just really not like our name isn't tarnished enough as Americans, but I think I helped. I did my part uh, to really reinforce terrible stereotypes about us just to prepare people for Trump America. Um, uh, and then, uh, yeah, and then yeah, it's, uh, um, I have a lot of stuff about uh, my family and mental illness and just kind of being more open about, you know, the stuff that we've kind of struggled with, um, but also making light of it clearly. And then um, I've had a lot of health issues in the last couple of years, which have kind of been exacerbated by the fact that, I haven't been able to control it as much as most people because I do travel and just kind of, again, making light in front of the fact that my body doesn't care about me. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing how your body just kind of is like going, ah, whatever, man, we're traveling. You, you take care of that end of it. Yeah. It sounds, <laughs> seems like a you problem. Right. So you've, you are very open pretty much about everything from, you know, the stuff that we've heard on, that we found on you on YouTube and stuff. But was there anything about yourself or your health that you were like, nope, not going to talk about that? Um, I really don't. I don't go into specifics about my health um, just because in some ways I'm still I still don't actually know what's wrong with me. Um, so uh, <laughs> nobody knows. Uh, so some of that stuff is like a, a more general like these are the things I struggle with emotionally because of my health problems and the things that I've come up against because I have a. a a, a diet diet restrictions and what that means and stuff like that. Um, I don't know. I don't, I mean, some stuff, the details is where the funny is and some stuff, the details is where you bore people. So it's about kind of finding the balance between um, just enough information um, before you hit too much information. So it just kind of depends on where the joke leads me. Gotcha. And do you find it like when you're traveling overseas, like, is there a, uh... You know, is it harder for your dietary restrictions over there? Like, does does the illness feel worse there, or is it here as far as you know all of our processed <laughs> foods that we're so famous for compared to overseas? Yeah, I mean, our food here is not as like so. Food overseas, for the most part, I've noticed is is like what like we've had to go through deep restrictions for things to be organic, and it costs a lot of money where you just buy something there and it's naturally organic and there's no special label on it and stuff because they just treat food better. So I find it, I find that I do better at home because I'm able to cook for myself and I'm able to easily, um, I buy by my restrictions because everything is in my apartment and I can, you know, pack snacks and stuff like that on the road. It gets, harder because I'm in airports and I'm going from literally city to city every single day and I have to eat out a lot more. 
but like when I'm overseas, it's like, it's, there's two things. There's like one part of it is like the food's more pure and I feel like I eat healthier and in a, in a more affordable way in a lot of ways. But then on the other side, it's like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be in Belgium again. I should probably cheat and have some waffles, right? Like, <laughs> so there's a lot more cheating that happens because I don't know if I'll ever be in these countries again. And I feel it's my, you know, my duty to let people know that, yes, the, the, the waffles are amazing. And I, my stomach hurt because of them. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm sure it's a lot, he, he, probably a lot healthier to eat a Belgium waffle in Belgium than buffalo chicken wings in Buffalo. So, I mean, you 100%, know. <laughs> 100%. So, like, as of now, this is going to be, like, your second comedy album. Did you approach it differently than you did than the 2014 Emotionally Exhausting? Um, if anyway, if anything, um, doing that first album made me understand what my capabilities were for the, for the, um, for the second one. So technically emotionally exhausting should have been my, my second album. I recorded something about two years earlier and it got, I tried recording it twice and twice the audio got messed up and I was so like upset about it and just so like, can't even think of what the word is, just pissed is probably the word definitely definitely pissed but it just felt like this weird vendetta against me and i'm just like nobody wants this album and i'm doing it for myself like it just it just felt like people were trying to stop me and it was just like why why so i got so upset about it and it just felt like everything was kind of in my way and it got ruined twice that maybe i should take it as a sign so i decided to throw out all that material and write a new hour and whenever that hour was done i would record it so it took me about a year and a half to write Emotionally Exhausting. I think I only kept like one or two bits from that previous hour that I never released. And um, it made me realize how quickly I can write an hour. So because I knew it took me about a year and a half, for this one, I was like, all right, so in a year and a half, I should have another one. And that's I, I really do hit that mark to a T. Um, it took me a little longer to release it because I wasn't sure um, what, what set I wanted to do and, you know, because, you know, this one was recorded in London, so there's a part of me thinking that I was re- going to re-record it in the U.S., and I didn't, and I started to really kind of like that it was recorded overseas. But other than that, it took me a year and a half to write the material. So I, I'm just kind of learning my writing process, and, and I think each time it gets sharper, and there's a lot more stories in this one, okay. and my bits are a lot longer, and I think the first album taught me that I can write longer pieces and taught me how to write those longer pieces. Do you find it hard to memorize the longer routines? Because I took a small stint and I, and I and I tried to do the stand-up thing and I did um, a lot of open mics, a couple of regular shows, but like every time I felt like I had a good long joke, the hardest part was to memorize it so that it would come out perfectly every time. So I think in a lot of ways it's, um, what's the way to put it? Um, you, you kind of memorize things in chunks. So first of all, I'm never really working on more than three bits at a time. If I am working on like a long story bit, it's probably taking up a fair amount of time. So sometimes I might just be only working on this story and maybe one other bit. So like your focus gets really um, narrowed down and you're really just focusing on a couple of minutes. And then I will come out with an idea and I'll just tell it and then I'll record it and then I go back and I comb through and I figure out what of that idea was hitting and then I'll make adjustments and then I'll try to remember those adjustments and then I'll go back through and do it and then I'll listen to that so it's a lot of like try it 
listen, figure out what's going well, try the new stuff, listen, figure out. So it's like, it, I'm never just memorizing a whole chunk. I'm memorizing two or three lines here. Cause you already have like the essence of what you want to say and right. it might come out different each time. But for maybe like, I would say like a couple of weeks to a month, I don't pressure myself to memorize it exactly the way I want to say it because truthfully it's not good yet. I don't need to memorize anything cause it's not exactly what I want to say cause I'm still kind of fishing to figure it out. So I just, I want the essence to come out and then each time I try to pick a line or two that I either want to try or something I accidentally said that I want to make sure that I do incorporate it. And so I give myself, I give myself usually like a month to like a month and a half before I start making myself really memorize it. And by that time, there's lines that I've started to become familiar with and excited about. So it's never like I have to memorize a three minute bit. It's like I have to know certain markers to hit and certain things to kind of get out there, but it doesn't have to be said exactly perfectly. And then by the time I get excited about it, that's when I start really memorizing it. Ah, getting excited about it. That's like the hardest part because you never know what the reaction's going to be. <laughs> yeah, but sometimes you're just excited to get an idea out there. Like, True. um, like I'm working on um, a bit right now about my mom wanting to be cremated, and it's from a conversation I had with my mom. And it was I know what I know is I mean, it we came out it came out pretty on point funny when we were talking about it. But it's about her wanting to be cremated, and she saw something online where you could put your ashes in a plant. So she's like, I want to be a plant now. And I was like, Mom, you don't want to be a plant because if you're a plant in our family, you're gonna die again two weeks later. <laughs> And so, like, it's, it's like, I know what the funny part is, but then it's kind of constructing the whole bit. And so from there, I mean, I've ended up coming up with three or four punchlines. It has a longer beginning. I kind of describe my mom a little bit. And I'm still working on it. It still has a lot of stuff, but it becomes, um, like, a fun puzzle. And um, and I, I start to, I, I get excited about how am I going to display this joke. That's a very cool way of looking at it. So... Let's go back to Melee again really quick. You recorded uh, Melee in Europe this time. So what's the biggest difference, would you say, between the European and the American audiences? Um, really, it's... Um, so there's some... There's little lines in there I had to change just because there are a little bit of... There is a little bit of a language or, like, um, um, word barrier on certain stuff. But for the most part, everything kind of... I think because I don't talk about, um, like geographical things or things where you had to be there. I really talk about times in people's lives and observations about you as a human. It be, it, I've realized through touring a lot that I'm pretty universal, but the biggest difference is like, it's just how things hit. So like the best example is I have a joke about performing in Luxembourg and I just have this line where I say, um, you know, I didn't even know Luxembourg existed until I got there. And it's a, it's a dig on my American education. So when I do it in Europe, that line murders because they think we're all idiots. And they're right. <laughs> I was going to say, Luxembourg. yeah. <laughs> I didn't know Luxembourg existed, and they're right. When I do that line in the U.S., it's, it barely gets a laugh because they also didn't know Luxembourg existed. So they don't <laughs> think I'm telling a joke. Um, so there's little stuff like that that sometimes it does better in the U.S., sometimes it does better in the U.K. It just kind of depends on little things like that um, and how it hits. But for the most part, I actually, I really enjoy, like, seeing the differences, and I don't, clearly don't take it personally. And 
That's neat, though. I mean, I can only imagine, like, you know, you telling that joke somewhere in the Midwest and I'm trying to figure out where in Spain is Luxembourg. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're getting ready to head out back overseas again next month. Uh, is there a European city there that you cannot stand leaving once you get there? Um, I am obsessed with the Netherlands. I, I've done four, I performed four cities um, there like almost two years ago now, and I haven't been back, and I keep trying to get back. Um, and I, like, I love Amsterdam, but I didn't get like the full Amsterdam, like I was only there for less than 24 hours and it was super rainy. So I really want to go back to Amsterdam, but really like I was in Rotterdam, I was in Utrecht, I was in, uh, I think it was Endehoven or Endehaven. I loved all of them. And I just, I, I'm constantly like researching how, like how to get back there. And just about like, there's like this, I always keep pretending like I'm going to retire there somehow. Okay. Um, I just, I really like it there. And I just. The way of life is just so much healthier. The way they treat their people and the way they treat just everything just is like, it just seems like a healthier lifestyle that um, I would like to embrace if I had the ability. But um, I mean, I always go back. I always kind of like make London my base. So I'm I have a great friend group of comedians and and non comics in London now, and it's kind of become like a second home. So I always love and miss London. But um, of all the places I've toured all over the world, I would really, I would love to go back to the Netherlands. And uh, I was doing a military tour in Turkey, and it's almost, it makes me really sad, you know, how much terrorism is going on there because it's such a beautiful country. And I would, I would like to go back to Turkey sometime and, and travel there. How do you set up your tours? Do you, do you mostly book your own tours overseas? Is that how it works out? Or do you have like a booking manager who sets that up? So this is the first tour I have. I now have a UK agent that books my entire European tour, except for maybe a couple of dates. Um, so this is different for me. This is the first time somebody else has literally booked everything, booked my travel, um, all that stuff. But up until this tour, my first four tours, I booked everything myself. Um, I had a couple of recommendations from friends, emailed people, sent them my stuff. Um, and then from there, I would invite bookers to shows. They would see stuff. So then the next tour, I'd be like, remember when you saw me? And each time... Um, I had more and more people see me. I got my name out there, and I started to kind of cultivate um, a little bit of a fan base and um, notoriety in the um, through the clubs and stuff like that. So I was able to kind of build each time. So this is the first time that I now have, like, a proper agent that's um, doing most of the heavy lifting, and it's, you know, wonderful. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll bet. It's got to make life so much easier, especially if you haven't been to some of these places to try to, like, think of the logistics to, you know – book them you know places you haven't been before <laughs> yeah that's always like the hardest is like figuring out trains and times and all that stuff so it's nice having somebody else kind of coordinate all that stuff for you and almost every single place except for london um is uh places i haven't been before it's all new countries and cities so it's i it's both that that feeling is both really exciting and really daunting so oh, it's, it's nice when you have somebody that's helping you wow so what would you say would be the number one overseas travel tip if you can give any to your fans? Oh, pack light. You don't need it. You don't need it. <laughs> like that's like I traveled. So I did a three and a half month um, Europe Middle East tour. So like the first month was this military tour throughout like Cuba, um, uh, Italy, Jordan, Turkey, Egypt. 
Then I was based in London for six weeks, and I kind of did like uh, Belgium and Sweden and a couple other places. And then I did the Fringe Festival in Scotland. So three and a half months, not home. And I traveled with a carry-on like luggage, like a rolly bag, like a small rolly bag and a backpack. Nice. For three and a half months. <laughs> most places, especially overseas, most places have at least a washer, and then you would just hand dry. Um, but it's worth, it's so much worth just washing your clothes instead of trying to bring everything and lugging it around. I never check my bags. Therefore I've never lost any luggage. Um, I just, I, I travel like even that tour, I traveled with two weeks worth of clothes and I've really only used about a week and a half. So now I know for this month that I really just need a week and a half. So I always, you know, I always have sneakers and like the boots that I wear all the time. And then a couple pairs of pants, a bunch of shirts, everything, you know, you want to have as much underwear and socks as possible. But for the most part, like, you're going to buy something out there. You're going to want to bring something home. It costs so much now to like check things. And I just light, 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 light. If, if you, you, if you think you need it, really sit and try to decide, is this something I'm going to wear every day or am I going to wear it once in a month? And it's such a waste of time and space. All right. So pack light. And that's always my thing too. I'm like, if, if it doesn't fit in the carry on, it's not coming with, it's exactly. just the way it is. <laughs> All right, so one question we love asking the comedians when we, like, interviewed them is, when did you know you were funny? Given that you started stand-up at age 16, you might be our youngest answer yet. <laughs> um, I'm still trying to figure out if I'm funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's, always so, it's always so weird because people go, oh, have people told you you're funny your whole life? And I was like, no, people have told me I'm annoying. Um, <laughs> and that uh, has not changed very much. Um, I don't know. I... I made, it's so weird because like, I'm, I'm being very truthful. No one ever told me I was funny. Like my friends didn't tell me I was funny. Like I would get a reaction out of them, but I was mostly just kind of really sad or I would get really hyper on like sugar and like when I smoked pot and like get really annoying. But when I started doing comedy, everybody was really supportive because they knew how much I loved it. But it wasn't like this, like I was a class clown or I was like, always telling these stories to my friends. I was really quiet and I was really shy and I was really sad. Um, and occasionally I would get goofy. Um, <laughs> and even my stand-up is not goofy at all. Like even that side of me, not a lot of people see. But um, I don't know. I, I remember, so what I did is I started writing when I was 14 and I would write these jokes out and I would hand them to my, like my girlfriends in the hallway and ask them to tell me what they thought was funny. And that's kind of how I put together my first five minutes. I, I got a couple of laughs the first time I did a show, but I really, somewhere around like 19, it's like there were certain jokes that started clicking. And like when you have that first joke that kills everywhere, or that first joke people come up to you after a show and tell you that it was great. Like I, I remember one joke when I was 17 that that worked. It was really dark, but like there, it's, I started to have more and more when I was like 19, 20, and that's when I really started to feel funny. Nice. It took you a while to feel funny considering you've been doing it for so long. Yeah, but I I think in the beginning it was it was just passion. Like I just wanted to do it, but I didn't ever think I would be good at it. And then when I started to get better at it, I was like, oh, maybe this could be a career. Which is awesome because most yeah. people don't see that. They can't see past like, you know, the first couple of gigs, which is, you know unfortunate but luckily you did because you are funny so if nobody told you we told you now thank you <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> so 
What do you remember about your first stand-up experience? Um, I have it on VHS, and I did. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you know Julia Rossi, but she has a show um, in Brooklyn called First Sets, where you give them your first set, and you do a set like you'll do your current set, and then you sit, and in front of the audience, she she plays back the first time you were on um, on stage. And so I have a, I had a VHS of my first show, and she put it. She made it into. Um, uh, you know, something digital. And I hadn't watched it probably since I got rid of my VHS player. So probably since I was like 20. Okay. Um, and uh, I, if I go by complete memory, I remember getting laughed and just being so relieved that I got any laugh, like just any laugh. So I remember getting a couple of laughs and being relieved that I got laughs. Then from watching it that, you know, this is a, about, I don't know, four or five months ago, watching that set on Julia's show, um, she made a really interesting observation where she was like, you actually talk about the same thing. Like, clearly, you're much funnier, but all the topics were pretty similar. So I have new jokes about, you know, mental illness being in my family and my parents being kind of crazy and, you know, um, feeling kind of like an outsider. And then my set is like, you know, my parents don't get along and my dad's trying to get me in therapy and, you know, my family's crazy and nobody knows, nobody gets me. And I was like, whoa, I haven't grown. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's just, you're just saying words and hoping there's a response rather than now. I know even if something doesn't get the response I think it deserves, I know I can figure out how to get them to respond. I just haven't said the right word or it's not in the same order. I haven't given them enough information. So you kind of see like now it's like, I know how to present my ideas where before I would just say them and it was like, you know what I mean? You're just waiting for a reaction and you have no idea what it's going to be. Right. But I think like you're in good shape because a lot of your comedy is relatable. Yeah, absolutely. We've all gone through it. We've all like, you know, have the parents that don't get along at times. And I mean, especially like, I mean, anything creative, everybody has like that mental glitch where they're like going, eh, maybe it's time to go see somebody. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> otherwise we wouldn't be doing this. We'd be accountants and just complacent. We're not that way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so speaking of, you know, somebody who is able to basically hit on, you know, things that people could relate to, what was it like having George Carlin as a comedic mentor? Um, it's, to me, it's, it's still pretty surreal. Um, I, I was, I, I mean, I ended up talking about this recently with a friend, like he was somebody that just like a lot of people I looked up to in comedy. I, you never, not only do you never think you will be as funny as them, but you never think you'll be in the same room. And so to have somebody call you, to have somebody return your emails, to have lunch with somebody, and for them to be openly encouraging, to believe that you're capable of doing something, and to be able to, you say a question and they answer your exact question, it's like most people don't have that in any any aspect of their life or any career. You know what I mean? Like oh, yeah. I was able to ask one of the best people to ever do my job you know, how do you organize your set list? Like, I remember having lunch with him when I was 19, and he opened, the reason I have a MacBook is because he had a MacBook, like, flat out. Like, he opened up his MacBook, and he showed me how he organized his bits. And just like how you asked me, how do you memorize it? He had clearly even longer bits, 
And he would show me how he would break it down and color code it, and that's how he would memorize a bit. And so to have somebody flat out, you ask not only just like a creative question, but a technical question, like how do you organize your bits? How do you memorize them? How do you break them down in chunks? So uh, there's some things that you have to come to on your own, and everybody's going to have their own um, process and organizational style and writing style. But there's some stuff that just like a parent trying to teach you how to do something, they can give you a little bit of a heads up, like, hey, I've tried this, this, and this, and this is the thing that I found is best for me, so why don't you try here? And to have that, um, both the, the ability to have access to somebody that can give me point-blank solid advice, but also to have access to somebody that flat out can tell me, this is hard, but it's doable, and I believe you can do it, is like, there's, you can't pay for that. Like, there's nothing, that's, that's, that's been probably the most rewarding thing is I had one of the best people to ever do my job tell me that I'm capable. Yeah, which is incredible. I mean, like when we were researching you, of course, because, you know, we're kind of stalkerish around here. <laughs> we, we like found out that, you know, you had sent out a bunch of letters to a bunch of different comedians. He was the one who like stood up and it's like if you were going to have anyone's, you know, come forward and be a mentor, he would be the guy because to this day. I mean, his stuff is still so relevant on so many levels, maybe more so now than it was when he was delivering it for the first time. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, what I always say is that he influenced, I was raised to be like a really thoughtful, you know, caring person and go out of my way for people. But you, you expect when people are at that level of both fame and um, uh, ability that they don't have time. And anybody, and anybody would acknowledge that like if he made the excuse like I don't have time for this or I wouldn't do this um no one would judge him for it but he did make the time and I'm not the only person he made the time for so as I get busier and as I get my name kind of out there I, I acknowledge that I am busy I am overwhelmed but I can take five minutes out of my day and email this person back or I can find an hour and guide somebody that I know exactly where their head is and how frustrated or scared they are and I can give them some encouragement and he really if anything taught me that you always have time for other people and just being encouraging and just being open can change somebody's trajectory and change somebody's life so if if I'm able to do that I should are you getting to the point where young comedians are starting to come to you around the globe and start picking yeah, your brain I, for <laughs> I, yeah I do I, I get it I get a lot of emails um, especially because um, I don't know if you came across it in your in your stalking, but um, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm dyslexic and I um, I talk about it a lot on podcasts. But some like literally like I did a podcast in London specifically um, dyslexic creative people, but um, I did a conference for the Dyslexic Advantage. It's one of the best books I ever read, and they are just the best people. And um, I did a 20 minute talk about being a comedian and being dyslexic and how it. Um, you know, affected me when I was younger and how uh, I've adapted and the, the pros of being dyslexic. And it's online. It has like maybe 15,000 views, something like that. But I get a lot of emails from creative people basically saying like, I want to do stand up. You're dyslexic. These are the problems I'm having. How did you overcome them? Because even my process is different than other people's process, because even though my written word isn't always out there, it, my brain works slower. I have a terrible memory. Um, I, I struggle to reach and find words. Um, I have trouble, you know, reading, especially if I'm doing any kind of acting stuff. So it's like, well, how do you, how do you, it's such a part of your career. How do you overcome it and continue to, 
work through it. And so a lot of it is not only I'm a young comic, but some of it's I'm a young comic and I'm dyslexic. How did you do it? Yeah, right. Oh, wow. So, like, what is the most, I mean, considering that you're dyslexic, and I'm sure people besides, you know, George Carlin had given you advice over the years, um, what was the most important piece of advice that you had gotten in, in order to, like, pursue your career, considering the challenges that you faced? Um, honestly, like, the advice you get over and over again from just about anybody is to constantly write and to, and to constantly get up on stage. It's like a basic, you can't, you can't get around that. And the, the reason you know you can't get around that is because you have Jim Gaffigan and Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock and all these people, Seinfeld, dropping by small clubs doing, spot, doing spots for free, even though they get paid thousands and thousands of dollars by fans to do it in a theater, they still are constantly getting up in small clubs doing it for free, popping by, because you can't get around the fact that you have to constantly be writing and coming out with the new stuff and you have to constantly be trying out your new stuff and polishing it before you charge people. And that never goes away. It doesn't matter how big you are. Kevin Hart still does small spots. Jim Gaffigan still does small spots. Um, so in the beginning, all your spots are small spots and you don't really know how to hone your stuff or, or um, even figure out how to get up on stage. And I think the best advice I've ever been given um, was I was already on the cusp of kind of discovering it, but like because people are telling you you have to constantly write new stuff and you have to constantly get up, it's also like the preparation. Like, yeah, do a little bit of like I was, I was always super written. I always had like eighty percent of my idea, and then it was testing it out on the audience, and then maybe twenty of it was written on stage. But now as I've gotten older, I've stopped being so um, scared of failing on stage and just this writing on stage. Like I remember reading about Sinbad. I'm still a huge, I'm a huge Sinbad fan. I think he's, I think he's the best. And I think he's so underrated as in the comedy community. And like, I know he was successful and all that stuff, but I feel like he's never brought up as somebody that's just always constantly funny, whether he's in an interview or his specials. But he was somebody I would always read about when I was a teenager. And he goes, I don't write anything down. I write everything on stage. And I was the opposite. I was like, I don't even know if I'm ever going to be able to do that. And it was probably only like maybe six years ago that I started to write more on stage. I still physically write stuff down just because I am dyslexic and my memory is bad and written stuff helps me memorize it. But I now might go on stage with 20% of an idea and talk out of my ass then listen to the recording and then start fleshing it out that way. And that's something that like being able to like get older and look back on old advice and incorporate it now that I have a little more understanding of the craft has been really important. Nice. Nice. All right. So we're winding down. I got two more for you. Um, all right. This is from Nikki. She says she has to ask if you could pick only one of George Carlin's seven dirty words to say as your only curse word from here on out, what would it be? Cunt. Yeah. Yep. That's her favorite word too. Seriously, all the time. It's, I mean, my sister almost got fired from a job for saying it. Um, and my sister bought me a necklace with, with the same phrase. Um, <laughs> it's like, it's, it, it's the one that still pisses people off. Not in the UK, by the way. In the UK, they use it like as and. Oh, yeah, in we've the, been. We've but been. in the US, you can really hurt somebody with it. And it's also just, it, be, it almost becomes a term of endearment with my friends. But there, it feels good. 
it, it feels it when you're angry it feels really good <laughs> yeah you know it's weird nikki actually when she a few years back before her and i met and started doing this show she used to go and order cakes from like the local bakery in pennsylvania <laughs> and just be like you know write cunt on this cake and she would be like just to see the reaction of the people like yeah, to do yeah. it and i was like you it's know, for my grandma yeah exactly and it's so strange because you would go someplace i mean we we've been to ireland a few times and you go over there and it's like they say it at breakfast and, yeah, here, it's, yeah. <laughs> and here you got to save it for a special occasion in order to like use yeah, yeah. it so it's like all right exactly all right so comes it is uh and finally um speaking of advice what would you tell a 16-year-old you knowing what you know now about the comedy world? Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's so hard. I actually think about it a lot, especially because um, I'm 31 now. I actually thought, like, I because I always knew going into comedy that it was going to take 10, they always said, like, it takes 10 years to find your voice. You know, um, it's about the longer you're in it, the funnier you get. So I knew that like I'd be 31 when I've been doing it for 15 years. Like that's weird. Like I remember thinking that as a teenager. So it's a weird year for me, but I mean, I would probably tell her probably 16 year old her and 20, all my twenties year old me to it's, you'll get there. You'll get there. Don't, don't stress so much. Like do the work, have fun but don't put so much um, pressure on yourself. Cause I, I think I put a lot of, I should be further, I should be better, I should be doing more. Um, I now can relax a little bit more than I used to. Yeah, Liz, I'd say you're doing all right. You're getting to travel the world, you're gonna spend a lost weekend in Amsterdam eventually. You know, it's yeah. all gonna work yeah. out for you. <laughs> nice going. All right. Well, I think that's it for for us. Um, thank you so much for talking to us. It was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And we're back. And that was it. That was my interview with Liz, who was phenomenal in the interview. She really was. I loved how, first of all, of course, I love that her favorite dirty word is cunt. And of course you know, do. Obviously, I was like, I was like sitting here like champing at the bit when you were asking that question. I'm like, say it, say it. And I'm like, yes. Yeah, because you told me after the interview, like, I wanted to stand up and say, that's my favorite word, too. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, okay, that's good. Your mom would be proud, Nikki. Your mom would be proud. Oh, she knows all about it. I know she does. <laughs> you are just filth in front of your mother is what it comes down it to. That's all right. That's how she raised me, so. She, I know. She wanted me to be that kind of person, to be a take-no-prisoners until you became that person, and then she's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Slow your roll. Whoa. <laughs> anyway, you should know better. <laughs> anyway, I loved Liz's advice. I mean, just I loved hearing her talk about, like, touring Europe and, you know, her advice for packing. I mean, that was just brilliant. And, like, you should do that. But, like, it's just cool to hear, you know, somebody say, like, hey, man, I do this. Like, I lived out of a backpack and, like, a carry-on for a month and a half, you know? And, you know, it's weird because we were literally just talking about travel this past week. As, you know, we were saying how 
you know, it's strange. Over time, you work with people, and then, like, they'll disappear from a job, and then you see them on social media, and you're like, man, this person just lost their job, and they're backpacking across Europe, or they're, you know, going around the world, yeah. and they have no job, they have no money. How can they possibly do it? And then, When we have jobs and we can't afford dick. <laughs> exactly. I feel like you need to be unemployed and broke in order to travel the world, or a comedian. Yeah. Those are your two choices, pretty much. <laughs> and that, that's what I got out of the whole conversation. Either you got to be broke and unemployed, or you got to be a comedian, then you can travel the world. And what's weird to me is she said she's looking forward to get back to Amsterdam because she was only there for a day. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't help but think, and I was going to ask her, and I was like, maybe it's rude. How do you know it wasn't a week? <laughs> Because I feel like if I went to Amsterdam, it would probably feel like a day, yeah. even if it was a month. Yeah, yeah. We're like champing at the bit to get to Amsterdam. There will be a point where I go there. For reasons you need not know. There will be a point when I go there for research, for this show, <laughs> for of course. Yes, yes. For research and forever. <laughs> and I feel like what an awesome place to do a comedy show. Like maybe I won't even do any more stand-up myself in the United States. I would just go someplace where – weed is completely legal and people are just laughing hysterically for nothing and i just take it in and just be like thank you very much and you're just like up there making noises like woo, woo, woo. <laughs> and like you're not like, saying anything you're just like <laughs> like i'm the guy from police academy yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. i love that guy <laughs> i know you do and i don't get it it's like the guy's only talent was to make noises and you're like amazing man that guy was just He's absolutely amazing <laughs> He's a one-man show onto himself. He just goes on stage and he's like, tell me if anybody knows this one. And it'd be like, ambulance. And he'd be like, thank you very much. Tell me if anybody knows this one. Roof, roof. A dog. All right. Uh, you got it. But anyway, so Liz, I mean, she just gave like really great insight into like the comedic world, especially because she has such a unique take being that she was like a kid when she started, you know, and she's got like, it sounds like she's got a really good head on her shoulders, especially because she had to deal with, you know, a lot of like health things and like mental things and stuff. And it just, you know, I think that just like really helped her. Oh, absolutely. Especially the mental stuff. Like, seriously, like. When you and I were going to like open mics and stuff like that, and you could tell the well-rounded people because they had such a hard time seeing funny because they never had any kind of, you know, controversy in their lives that they can make light of. Right. I mean, even in my class, there was two women in my class when I was when I was going to comedy class, and both of them had it made like they were both married they both made a lot of money you know and and they lived like you know right. in midtown one lived in midtown one lived in the village i mean they literally had the life that we're all striving for and one of the first things that they teach you is of course write about things that you know about sure. don't try to like embellish too much like make sure you know the subject before you write about it and make it about something, you know, something that most people wouldn't make light out of and then twist it to make light out of it. Because right. everybody goes through bad shit in their lives. And if you can, like, make fun of the bad shit, people can relate to it and then be like, oh, maybe it wasn't as bad because you put a lighter mood to it. And they had nothing. 
And right. it was so hard for them. And seriously, from week one to when the class finished, at the end of it, they were just like, we really don't have anything bad. And they started making jokes about weight, like, oh, I'm so overweight. And it's like, you look at them and it's like, you go you to weigh, yoga at yeah, 6 a.m. every morning. You no, weigh not. 98 pounds, yeah. man. I'm at 302. You want somebody to make a weight joke? It's not you. <laughs> it's me. Yeah, because like nobody can relate to that. Like nobody. Well, that's most it. Because most people yeah. aren't in that place. So yeah. I feel the more <laughs> things that you have wrong with you, every show, Nikki. I know. Every I'm sorry. Single show. I like, can't help seriously, it. Do you want me to get a frog in my throat? Yes, I would love it if you got a frog so in your throat because I can punch you in the Adam's apple. It would jump out and then you can just make that sound one star in the show, not a bunch of times. You could sit on the couch for like seven hours and not have to clear your throat. The second a microphone turns on, you're like. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, what the hell are you doing, well, man? Maybe it's just my like internal clock saying like, be quiet, Tom. <laughs> I don't think your internal clock saying be quiet. I think your internal clock saying like it's time to like clear your throat into the microphone. The microphone's on. Clear your throat now. We've only been doing this for uh, like over a year at this point in time, and you're still every show you're like. It's only been a year and a half, Tom. I'm still getting my feet wet. I mean, I'm just shocked that you're like facing the microphone now when you talk into it. Like we finally got the levels to work, but instead of words, now it's just weird grunts and shit that comes out of your mouth. So it's kind of like, go back to not looking at the microphone if you're going to just make weird noises. <laughs> Only words go in the microphone. Words. Oh, words. Okay. Yeah. Unless you're the guy from Police Academy. Then you pop, 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 all you want. Which I wish I was. And you're not. So no noises out of you. <laughs> just words. That's all I want to hear from you. So anyway. Well, there we have it. Anyway. I think that because she has like issues she could talk about them because she knows about them which makes it a lot easier for a comedian to right go into it so you know yeah definitely it what might seem like a crutch not necessarily the case in every field but yeah and i mean like it's just it is just like we were saying like it's just relatable things like you know everybody has been in a depressed state or you know has issues with their family or you know other things and you know it's just it, it's relatable and that's what works that's what hits it yeah hit it i feel like the hard part though is if you're going through like a mental state of depression or something like that, it's hard to just be like, I'm going to make the effort to go out on stage now. But if you can, right. you're probably going to bring in gold because you'll be able to like bring those things up that people right. don't usually talk about. Right, exactly. But when you're in that rut, it's kind of like, I don't want to go out on stage right now. I want to be depressed. I want to be in the dark. Go out on stage? Like that's the last exactly. place I want to be. But that's probably the best place for you to be is to like – Keep on keeping on, man. All right. So I'm going to take my broke dick down to like an open mic this week and just stand up on stage, draw out a couple of depression jokes. This is what's going on in my life this week. Look at the horror on everybody's faces and be like, I don't feel better. I'm going home now. Back to my dark room. Lead with the broke dick and I think you'll get laughs right away. Oh, yeah, because it is so funny to everybody else at this point in time. Seriously. If we didn't laugh, we would go insane. Oh, my God. (laughs) But, again, thank you so much to Liz. I mean, seriously, taking the time out and the amount of time. I mean, it was a decent chunk of an interview for sure. Yeah. And, I mean, we haven't had an interview in a while. And usually when we get comedians, it's like 15 minutes and usually out because you and I have talked about it so many times before. Comedians, you know. 
they spend so much time and energy trying to be funny on stage that yeah. when they're not on stage, they're just like, dude, just let me answer the questions and move on. Right. No. And she seems to be the same kind of person on stage as she is off. Like, she's just very personable. Yeah. And if you want to check out more, she is doing a an album release for Mind Over Melee. Um, on Tuesday, March 28th at the New York Comedy Club on 24th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenue and is going to feature, um, she's headlining with performances by her funny friends, um, Adrian Iapolucci, Carmen Lynch, Justin, Herman, Justy, Dodge, Noor, and David Michael Briganti. You did well pronouncing those names. Thank God you didn't give them to me. I know. I know. Like, seriously, because I read, And that was like, the first time uh, I read know. them, so I was just like, uh, but, but that's why I was so slow. But, yeah, so that's going to be on Tuesday, March 28th. Um, yes. Yes, so you should definitely, definitely check it out. Which will be tomorrow <laughs> from the, the show. Yes, tomorrow, March 28th. <laughs> that's and it. And you could check her out at com. And, of course, as Always, we will have all of her links in our show description. Of course we will, because I promised her, and if we don't do it, I look like an idiot, so... And God there. forbid. God forbid. So you could get your you get your type of nubs working and get on that. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Liz. It was great listening to Tom talk to you, and I'm glad that he got to do an interview. Yeah, me too. I, am, I get to do very few of them. Usually they just keep me locked under the stairs in the basement and... Once in a while, if there's a special thing that I get to do, I'm very happy being, being off the leash. So, Wouldn't you keep him under a leash, people? Honestly. Seriously. Whatever. So what do you say? Would you like to roll into a roly-poly rorty? I'd love to roll into a roly-poly rorty. All right. Let's play that music now. So much music. Roly-poly rorty. Roly-poly What you got for me this week, Roly Poly? Not so. What do I got, man? I don't know. I feel like. <laughs> Why are we doing it? Because we made a commitment to the listeners the to do a Roly Poly Rorty. Like, and since no one's going to write a Roly Poly Rorty article anytime soon, we have to at least give it to them in a show. <laughs> Honestly, so many people want to see a picture of you, and you would not believe your eyes, and I have been after Tom to take a picture of himself now because you would not believe the difference since the last time he had pictures taken. Yeah, he looks sick, sicker than before, basically. (laughs) But honestly, I'm telling you, ma'am, and you do not believe it. This is a psychological thing that so many people with bariatric surgery have. It's, you know, down 100 pounds now. I look in the mirror, do not see a difference. Like, I don't see a difference. The only way I see a difference is in the way that my clothes fit. But as soon as I, like, take them off and look in the mirror, I'm like, nope. I'm, like, going, absolutely do not see a difference. It looks like my clothes just got stretched out. Then as Joe Piscopo once said on Saturday Night Live whilst playing Frank Sinatra, you are blind as a bat. (laughs) All right, so six people got that joke. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> Joe Piscopo, of all people. I love Joe Piscopo. I saw him in Greece. I saw him at church on Long Beach Island, New Jersey, when I was on vacation once. The fact that you went to church on vacation makes my experience so much better than yours. He was wearing bike shorts, and he was with, like, the babysitter. Oh, good for Scandalous. him. Scandalous. Good for him. Well, he was maybe confessing. Yeah. Whatever. 
What? We sat literally right behind him, and he signed a piece of paper that my brother had in his shitty little tempo car. Oh, my God. Anyway. Anyway. So, yeah. So, you're down 100 pounds plus now. That's awesome. Down 100 pounds plus. I have a feeling it's going to go up a little bit because... Um, you're going to be getting an IV. I'm going to get an IV tomorrow. You lucky duck. Then I'm going to be getting another one next week. And then hopefully all the medical issues will be taken care of as far as kidney stones is concerned. And by the end of April, you'll be a running, running, running again. Oh, my God. I can't wait. It is something that I miss so much. And it's like mental health wise miss it. Like you don't realize like how much like. Like, seriously, there is it is at a point right now where depression is at like a high note. Right. And they say after bariatric surgery that a lot of people a few months out after they start losing the weight, start going through this thing where they will go into a depression of some mm-hmm. sort. So it's it's Why? not like because um, it's just hard dealing with depression so much. Yeah, well, depression usually triggers based on change. So like as things change, your mind doesn't know how to like how to adapt to it. So you know you wind up sloping into sure the abyss. But right now, knew I knew that going in, and it was kind of like all right, no. They made me prepared enough to realize, like, look, man, this might happen. Be ready for it. Been there before. Is no that why deal. you go through so much, like, psychological training before you have the surgery? Is that, like, part of it? Yes. I think that is part of it because they want to make sure that, like, you're stable enough so that when you do go through the depression that's going to be coming down the road, possibly, sure. that you're not going to go completely off the rails. And, like, binge eat and do, like, any kind of, like... right. Detrimental things to the diet. And I mean, I'm sure I could binge eat if I wanted to. The pain's still there when I eat too much, so it's not like I can eat too much anyway. Sure. But I mean, I can just see that, like, my schedule is completely upside down now. And a lot of that's because of the pain. Like, I go to bed, try to go to bed at, like, a decent hour. I'll lay there for a few hours it's to, and not be able to fall asleep because everything hurts so much. Especially when you're laying there in the dark and have nothing to do except for think about the pain. Sure, of course. So I come out into the living room and I'll hang out here until five, six o'clock in the morning. And if you're going to be up till five, six o'clock in the morning, you might as well have a snack while you're up. So, you you know, you're, you're running the risk of really fucking things up sure. down the road if this is the case. And that also is depressing because then you're like, man, I hate myself because I had something stupid to eat at like 3.30 in the morning that I shouldn't have had. Like a black and white cookie? Like a black and white cookie, which I felt guilty for for two days now because I should, ate because... A... And it was too big. It was too much. Like, there's no way I shouldn't have eaten that much. you brought half of it home for me, and you deserve to be sick. No, I'm just kidding. Thank you. No, I know you were really sick after <laughs> that. <laughs> but I was just like, I, and, and while it was happening, I was just like, you know, I'm like, I can't help it because I am so bummed out. I want like a happy food. And I was like, what can I have? Why not take a walk to the deli at 1.30 in the morning and pick up a black and white cookie <laughs> and an iced coffee? Because that's what you need to help fall asleep. <laughs> so by the time you're done eating that, it's kind of like, well, this is the reason why I'm depressed is because, you know, it's just this cycle. It's kind of like sure. I'm depressed because of the pain. I'll try to make myself feel better by eating some happy food. And then you eat happy food and you're like, I'm an idiot for eating that. Now I'm even more aggravated with myself, which is spiraling me sure. in. And, then, and that's understandable. So, I mean, it's definitely, 
you do need to find a way to wrap your mind around it going through. And I mean, we've talked about so many different stages and I feel like maybe every other week when we do this segment on this show, there's something new that comes up. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like, all right, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it was like, this is the beginning of kidney stones. You lose weight and your kidneys start to shrink. And if you have kidney stones, guess what's going to show up? You know, before that, it was like you were able to run, you know, was able to run. Right. The running, I would say, is maybe the best thing as far as mental health goes, because you're getting out all of that aggravation and all of the stuff that you'd be thinking about you just exhaust yourself yeah, from it you, were you come so back and pass happy out when you were running you were so so happy but now with the kidney stones and stuff like that i'm not even allowed to do stairs at this point in time yeah. so it's like basically trapped in this situation where yeah. it's like man i would love to be doing anything yeah even work for that matter and work has been like an absolute nightmare at this point in time because just trying to do work from home and not being allowed to do it for whatever reason. I don't even want to get into it. I don't know the reason why. It's ridiculous. But then, you know, you go from you got like a regular gig set up and it's like at least I can do that to distract myself. Right. You're told no. And now you're on disability and you feel like something else was taken away from you. Right. No, absolutely. And you have every right to feel like that because it was really shitty the way that that went down. Yeah, there was no need for it. So, I mean, you know, I would just say prepare for mood swings like down the road like after i mean i mean of course you're going to have them in the beginning when you're doing like the liquid diet and stuff like that because you're going your body's going into shock losing so much weight so quickly but even now i mean we're five months down the road from when the operation happened and it's like all right by now things should be good right six months. almost six, six months. months yeah but you i'm looking at it and i'm like going Things should be cool now, right? And it's kind of like, I'm not that much better off now than when I was then. I don't have the original pain. I have different pain and mental pain and just just all the weird shit going on. And possible financial pain. (laughs) Well, let's see what happens with the job first. Maybe financial pain. (laughs) But I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it is... When they say it's a life change, it really is a life change, and the change will probably keep going for the rest of your and life. And it'll vary depending on you know what your per- like what your past medical history was, what you know how active you were. Like if you were just somebody who, because Tom was, you know, we've talked about this on the show. Like Tom was a runner, you know, for a lot, like a large part of his life, and then it was something that he often would return to. But, you know, so if if you're the kind of person that wasn't that kind of person and you have the surgery and now, like, you're finding yourself having to be active, you know, that's going to open up a whole other world of injuries that you never even knew you, you know, and muscles that you've never even heard oh, you yeah. had and things like that. So, you know, it affects you in ways that, like, you know, we can't prepare you for. We can just talk about what we're experiencing with Tom. Yeah. But there's a lot of stuff going on. And we're thinking about documenting it in other ways in some other projects coming up in the future. Yes, we are just having these. Because in times of darkness, we find ourselves getting so creative, which is, you know, we were in a kind of dark place when we started this podcast. And it was just, you know, a way to just, hey, we have no idea what we're doing. We have no idea what we're going to talk about. And then, like, we found our groove. But, you know, going into it, we were just like, we need a creative outlet because, like, our world just, like, kind of crumbled a little bit. 
you know, I was getting laid off and things like that. So it was just like, what the fuck? And it's like, well, what do you do when you have no money? You start a whole brand new project. Well, that's it. You never know what's going to hit. And I feel like we're at that place again, pretty much, where it's kind of like, we got to make a change. It's not even that it makes sense to make a change. We absolutely have to make a change right now. And, you know, the podcast has been going good for us. I mean, like, you know, I wouldn't want to change this. I wouldn't want to ever stop doing this. But we need to add to it now. We definitely need to expand this into other medias. Yes. And we already mentioned that the TV show will be coming out soon. Mm-hmm. Um, just a couple more weeks, hopefully. Just a couple more weeks, hopefully. The the episode is practically done. I mean, and it it's looks just amazing. And it goes so fast, man. It's a twenty eight minute show, and I mean, we watched the the first version of it the other night um, in its entirety, and it went by in a second it was like minute 25 and i looked up at you and i was like can you believe there's only like three minutes left in this show and you were like no way because it goes by so quick yes and it is so different than everything else that we've seen out there blow your mind at least we hope so it's the acid trip without the acid unless you know you're you know you got some laying around and you want to take it before you watch it and then it will just look like law and order sv <laughs> <laughs> like it'll have the opposite reaction on you it'll just be like man i don't know it's weird i don't see any colors <laughs> <laughs> pretty much so we so ready to wrap up this week's Roly i think Pol- that's it for roly-poly roadie and i think that's it for the show pretty much this week so let's play the music and uh give our credits what credits to do ah Okay. Okay. So, (laughs) thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Liz for hanging out with us for a little while today and entertaining you peeps. Um, (laughs) If you'd like to learn more about Liz, of course, check out our website, uh, which is highregardshow.com. And of course, if you have any comments or whatever, you feel free to write us at highregardshow at gmail.com. And you can always find us on social media as highregardshow. And that does it for us, people. We will see you next Monday, and uh, we hope you all have a good week. Peace out, Cub Scouts. Good night. We sailed away. We walked 2,000 miles, and then we slipped away. We looked so hard But couldn't seem to find Just what the world was for